I feel so bad, I've got a worried mind I'm so lonesome all the time Since I left my baby behind on Blue Bayou Hello everyone and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication and this week I'll be reviewing a movie that currently holds a 30% Rotten Tomatoes rating based on Stephen King's 2001 novel Dreamcatcher. Starring Morgan Freeman, Damian Lewis, Jason Lee, Donnie Wahlberg, Tom Jane, Timothy Oliphant, and Tom Sizemore, this movie certainly has some serious acting chops. Plus, one of its writers was William Goldman, the screenwriter responsible for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Misery, The Stepford Wives, All the President's Men, Marathon Man, The Princess Bride, Chaplin, and the other writer was director Lawrence Kasdan, who wrote The Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, The Bodyguard, and wrote and directed Body Heat, The Big Chill, Grand Canyon, Wyatt Earp. And the cinematographer John Steele had worked on such classic films as Lorenzo's Oil, The Hitcher, Gorillas in the Mist, Rain Man, Dead Poet Society, The Firm, The English Patient, Ghosts of Mississippi, The Talented Mr. Ripley, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, and most recently, Mad Max Fury Road. Simply put, guys, there is a lot, and that's putting it as an understatement, a lot of talent in this movie. A lot. And as you know, the novel is not one of King's best. But at least he had the excuse that he was recovering after having been nearly killed in a car accident. Or rather, he was killed, then came back. The novel was comprised of a number of really cool ideas that never really came together into anything meaningful. So William Golden and Lawrence Kasdan, two experienced, incredibly talented filmmakers, could have taken these basic ideas from King's flawed novel and done something completely different. Instead, they decided to keep it pretty much as is, and somehow made the shit weasels even more unintentionally hilarious than they already were. This movie stands out as an example of why filmmakers should change plot points and events from a novel to serve the medium in which they are currently working. This could have been an example of how the movie can be better than the book, and with a few changes, it could have been great. I still stand by the concept. A group of four friends on a hunting trip encounter a crass spaceship in the winter woods. That's a great concept, guys. Maybe it isn't the most original, but it's a hook, and I'm there. I just really wish that Goldman and Kazdan had done something differently. This could have been out of this world. But instead, it belongs in the toilet like the shit weasels themselves. On a positive note, I remember seeing this in the theater, and because it was a Warner Brothers presentation, Warner Brothers was gearing up to promote The Matrix Reloaded and The Matrix Revolutions. So before these movies came out, there was a short animated film uh, called The Final Flight of Osiris playing in front of Dreamcatcher. And that was a fun experience, and I wish that we had more short films in front of our movies. It just adds a little extra spice when, when you go to the theater. All right, everyone, before I get to the review itself, I want to read a listener email. Um, and as you guys know by now, uh, you, you know that I love getting listener email and being able to share them on the air. So if you have any experiences with Stephen King that you want to share with everyone, then feel free to, to write to stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. Or if you have a thought on one of his books or... Um, 
you know, if you if you have a different opinion than something that I have shared, I mean, I, I want this to be a discourse, so you know, feel free to uh, to write. So our message today comes from Katie, who writes, "Hi, I love your podcast. I recently read Horns by Joe Hill and then listened to your review, which was excellent, by the way." Now I'm going to start myself. Big spoilers, guys, for Horns. If you have not finished Horns or you haven't read Horns. Uh, then I would stay away for just a couple minutes while I get into this um, because we're, we're talking about a pretty major plot point here. So Katie writes, however, one of the main things that I am grappling with from the story and wanted to hear your take on um, something that you did not mention at all. Do you think that Marin actually got in part what she wanted and that she didn't want to linger on through her disease and turn into a horrible person like her sister? And I was trying to work out if it was sort of be careful what you wish for scenario. Her death was in a horrible circumstance, but was it better or worse than fading away and becoming someone else who was horrible to those she loved? But then where does it love leave Lee? Is he doing good or evil or something in between? Is he the mirror image of Ig, who we think is bad, but is really good maybe? It really blew my mind and I'm still not sure what I think. I love Joe Hill's writing in that it is not obvious who is the good and the bad. It is like real people with potential for both good, evil, and indifference within them. Anyway, I would love to hear your ideas on it. Cheers, Katie. Katie, great point. Uh, and it's one that I never thought of. Uh, so your first question, yes, I do believe that Marin got what she wanted. Um, and that was that, that she doesn't she doesn't get to uh, to linger. And keeping with the, the theme of Dreamcatcher, which is about cancer and something invading you and taking you over and turning you into a monster, I think that this is a very appropriate email to read as that is everything that uh, Marin had wanted to avoid, right? But when it comes to Lee, I mean, it's just really hard place to, to find anything positive about that particular character who's just a monster through and through. But if Ig is our hero and he looks like the devil, then it reasons that stands to reason that there is also a little bit of gray with the, the character of Lee as well. Um, but I, I think that what you write here, I, I think that that is a great interpretation, that there is uh, a little bit of of multiple aspects of the, the human existence to reside within each of us, and that what we would expect to be simply good or evil is actually comprised of a myriad of human emotions. That's I think that I think that you're right. I think that that's absolutely it. So, Katie, thanks for for writing in, and everyone, like I said, uh, feel free to to do the same by writing into Stephen Kingcast at yahoo.com. And if you have not done so, head on over to iTunes to leave a subscription and a review over there, because any subscription and review will go a long way in uh, supporting to get uh, Stephen King cast out there. Anyway, uh, if you have not listened to my review of the book, head on over and check out that, podca um, uh, that podcast episode. And what I'm going to do now before I get into my analysis, I'm going to read the Wikipedia summary so I will have a basis upon which I can build my analysis. Jonesy, Beaver, Pete, and Henry are four friends on an annual hunting trip in Maine. As children, they all acquired telepathy, which they call The Line. A flashback shows them as they save a mentally handicapped boy named Douglas Duddett's Cavill from bullies and befriend him. 
Jonesy sees Duditz beckoning him to cross the street, but as he does so, Jonesy is hit by a car. His injuries heal with mysterious speed, and six months later he is able to make the group's annual trip. Jonesy meets a man lost in the forest named Rick McCarthy. He is very ill, so Jonesy and Beaver let, let him rest and recover inside their cabin. Suddenly, herds of forest animals flee past their cabin, followed by two military helicopters that announce the area is now quarantined. Jonesy and Beaver return to the cabin to find a trail of blood from the bedroom to the bathroom, where Rick sits semi-catatonic on the toilet, the room covered with blood. Suddenly, Rick is thrown from the toilet, dead, into the tub as a creature writhes and screams in the toilet. Beaver attempts to trap the creature under the toilet lid, but a three-foot-long lamprey, lamprey did the same thing in the last episode, lamprey-like creature with multiple rows of razor-sharp teeth kills him. Jonesy tries to escape, but is confronted by a large alien called Mr. Gray, who possesses Jonesy's body and emits a red dust around the entire cabin. Nearby, Henry and Pete crash their red Land Rover to avoid running over a frostbitten woman from Rick's original hunting party. Henry walks for help while Pete stays with the woman. She dies and also excretes a worm, which Pete barely manages to kill. Mr. Gray then tricks and kidnaps Pete, but Jonesy telepathically warns Henry to stay hidden. Henry returns to the cabin to find Beaver dead, and the worm that killed him lying a group laying in a group of eggs. Laying a group of eggs. So the worm is laying a group of eggs. In order to kill all of the alien larvae, he sets fire to the cabin. Meanwhile, an elite military unit specializing in extraterrestrials, led by a slightly unhinged Colonel Abraham Curtis, seeks to contain everyone exposed to the aliens, jailing them at a fenced-in concentration camp. Colonel Curtis is planning to retire after this operation and will pass the torch along with a pearl-handled stainless steel 45 pistol to Captain Owen Underhill, his trusted friend and second-in-command. The two lead a helicopter airstrike into a large forest clearing where the alien spaceship has crash-landed. The aliens use telepathy to distract the pilots, but the four Apaches and Curtis's Little Bird massacre most of the aliens with miniguns and missiles. The alien ship then self-destructs, destroying the remaining aliens and two helicopters. Jonesy, conscious within his mind, retraces the memories of the area while watching Mr. Gray use his body. Mr. Gray it tries to coerce Pete into cooperating, but bites him in half when he refuses. Jonesy realizes that Mr. Gray possessed him not by chance, but to access past memories of Duditz, which he needs. Jonesy locks his memories in a mental warehouse to deny Mr. Gray the knowledge that he seeks. Henry arrives at the fenced-in camp only to realize that Colonel Curtis plans to kill all of those quarantined. Henry convinces Captain Underhill to prevent this by inviting a larger U.S. Army unit to relieve Colonel Curtis and takes over the entire operation. Henry and Captain Underhill go to Duddits' home, with Duddits informing them that Mr. Gray is headed to the Quabbin Reservoir, which serves Boston, to seed the water with alien larvae. Colonel Curtis, realizing the danger that still looms to the entire planet, leaves the camp in his armed little bird and tracks down Henry, Captain Underhill, and Duddits via a microchip in the Gift 45 pistol. At the reservoir, Owen Underhill is strafed by Curtis's helicopter and mortally wounded, but not before he shoots Curtis down. In the reservoir's pump house, 
Henry uses Underhill's machine gun to kill Mr. Gray's first worm, but cannot decide if Jonesy is possessed. Duddits confronts Mr. Gray, who finally exits Jonesy's body. The two struggle as Duddits reveals himself to be a different race of alien. Both aliens explode in a cloud of red dust, which briefly resembles a dream catcher. Jonesy, now himself again, steps on the final larva worm before it can escape and contaminate the reservoir. Analysis. The Warner Brothers logo appears on the screen in the midst of a snowstorm. Now that's one thing I really like about Warner Brothers movies. Their logos match the movies they appear in front of. Now with that gone, the familiar Castle Rock lighthouse shines its light across a snowy world. And then we get an early 2000 introduction um, of a surreal image of ice and darkness and pieces of a dream catcher. Now honestly, this feels like a ripoff of the X-Files opening. The music is distinct, however, unsurprisingly, because it's composed by James Newton Howard. When the credits are over, we meet Henry, played by Thomas Jane, a psychiatrist so good at his job he can discern a patient's problems without them having to tell him. It's clear that Tom Jane has some sort of mental power which is only reinforced when after the patient leaves and he pulls a revolver from his desk to kill himself and only stops when the phone rings, knowing it's Josie. They make plans for Saturday and drop their catchphrase SSDD, and as we all know, Stephen King loves his catchphrases. Now this, by the way, is the first of two Stephen King movies in which Tom Jane has attempted suicide by gunshot, the second being Frank Darabont's The Mist. Jonesy demonstrates to his student and to us that he too has mental abilities all the while insulting Pittsfield, Massachusetts. Its name might be the Pitts, but the town itself is a nice little Berkshires locale. We are then introduced to Pete, played by Tom Timothy Oliphant, who I always wanted to play Randall Flagg. Pete, backed by Oliphant's charming self, walks a customer through her day in an attempt to find her keys, giving her and us a play-by-play -play using his magic mental powers. He's helpful, he's nice, but it's clear that the woman who he's asked on a date is completely weirded out. And then we meet Beaver, played by Jason Lee, the toothpick-chewing joker of the group. He calls Jonesy, tells him to be careful, and as they talk, Kasdan has a very effective demonstration of how these friends who have um, precog abilities, how they're able to speak to each other. Beaver is writing SSDD in the fogged-up glass of the phone booth as he asks Jonesy how it's going, knowing that he'll answer, and as soon as he calls him, tries to get off, knowing that Jonesy is heading back to his wife and kids. The longtime friends don't react strangely to their powers. It's just a part of their lives and themselves. It's a supernatural way to comment upon the very real-world experience of friends sharing the same tics, mannerisms, inflections, and sayings. It's what happens when you're around each other for a long period of time. The movie gives it a supernatural edge, but it's still very honest. So far, I'm really into this movie. I like all of the actors, and though they haven't spent much time with each other, I'm enjoying their interaction with one another. The cinematography is great. I'm intrigued at the suggestion of their powers and how it appears very everyday and natural to each of them, but when viewed upon from an outsider, it's considered freakish. So far, I mean, I just gotta say, I'm, I'm really enjoying this movie. I'm hooked. Jonesy uh, then does not follow Beaver's advice and walks into the street and immediately gets hit by unfortunate early 2000s special effects. 
In the ambulance, we get our first glimpse of young Duddits, who hovers over Jonesy to keep him alive. Six months later, the guys pull up to their winter retreat. The characters immediately start bouncing off each other. Beaver establishes himself as the joker of the group. He and Pete joke with one another. It's crude, a little forced, but it's fun. I just like moments where characters are relaxed with each other, without having to spit out exposition. Like what happens with Henry and Jonesy as they talk about Duddits. Specifically, how Jonesy saw Duddits beckoning to Jonesy across the street. Regardless, it's a mystery, and it is mysterious. It's enough for me, and I'm still really enjoying the movie. Later, while they sit around the table drinking beers, they discuss the memory warehouse, a great concept with great visuals. A life's memories are all interpreted as box files in a massive library, and we get a sequence of Jonesy organizing his warehouse, keeping his most important files in a special room. It's a surreal sequence set within a very recognizable and familiar scene of old friends talking about the old times. At one point, Jonesy, from his memory warehouse, looks out at himself, sitting at a table with his friends, and makes the scene, which I've already said is recognizable and familiar, fresh and unique. They toast to Duddits, their dream catcher, and to 20 more years of heading to the hole in the wall. And we get our first flashback, which has to intentionally connote Stand By Me. We get the backs of four boys walking along train tracks. I mean, rather than Castle Rock, however, we get Derry, Maine, just as it was in the book, the setting for the horror fest, It. And I love watching a movie set within a familiar Stephen King location. Our four heroes encounter Duddits being tortured by some bullies. The boys stand up to the bullies, showing their bravery. It's a bit over the top, very heavy-handed, but eh, whatever. I mean, still not enough for me to check out at this point. They help out Duddits. Beaver starts singing Blue Bayou by Roy Orbison, and then Duddits starts talking. Of all of the things that could have been changed, Lawrence Kasdan and William Goldman decided that Duddits shouting, Ooby Dooby Doo, Where Are Oo, and I Duddits was something worth keeping. Now, I'm not an expert on mental handicaps, but how can this be anything other than offensive? Like I said, I'm not an expert, but I've never met someone who shoves their arms in the air and shouts, I'm Duddits. Unfortunately, the scene breaks. Um, what has felt like a very natural and lived-in relationship among these friends. An early 2000s deer hunter. And Henry and Pete go to town while Jonesy and Beaver wait for their prey as the snow starts to fall. And right as Jonesy is about to bag a deer... He spots Rick staggering out of the forest. Rick, disoriented, covered with red patches, briefly mentions that he's lost the people that he was with, an ominous phrase. As Jonesy sits him down, he begins burping. Now here's the question, guys. Is burping scary? Is it frightening? Um, when I reviewed the book, um, I, I talked about how I had written off the book entirely and that's not fair to the book because the first half of the book is actually incredible and the body horror the body horror aspects that are found within uh the novel are very very effective and that includes everything that happens with rick and the, the whole bathroom scene and it, it's it's very it's very disturbing now i i i'm i'm pondering this a little bit how it plays out on the big screen because I, I guess we just need to ask ourselves here, 
what's the point of the burping? I would say that it's A, to convey that there's something physically wrong with the character, and B, to convey a sense of impending doom or dread that whatever is wrong with him will negatively affect his character. So if those are the two reasons behind the burping, then surely there has to be a better way to convey that information because it's one thing to read about burping and flatulence, right, on the page. Um, But it's another thing to just straight out include it on the screen. It doesn't have the same effect. And I, I just believe that it, unintentionally, however you cut it, invokes some level of comedy. So rather than burping, I mean, why can't he just clutch his stomach in pain? I mean, that would be one way to convey that something is wrong physically. I mean, what if he just rambles deliriously? Or you could have him say anything that would be inherently creeper, creepy, creepier than, than the burping. Which again, I just, when it's on screen, isn't necessarily frightening. And I just think it winds up being unintentionally hilarious. I mean, what if, think of it this way, what if John Hurt, started burping an alien before the alien burst out of his chest. It wouldn't necessarily be scary. In Alien, he started coughing, and coughing works. In the movie, the coughing led to seizing. It was a series of rapidly escalating physical reactions, and before you could make sense of one, he was already in the throes of another. So, you know what? I I guess I'd argue that it, it, the way that Ridley Scott filmed it, I... I a burp would have been unsettling because it would have been burp, cough, seizure, and you would still be lost in the helplessness of that moment. Okay, so I guess a burp can be scary. It's just how you film it. Here, it's just all burp, and that to me doesn't doesn't really do anything. It just it takes me out of the moment. Regardless, we then get a great shot of the lonely road filling up with snow, a single stretch of road cut through what appears to be an endless forest that is now coated in white. It's a beautiful shot, guys. Peter starts drinking on the ride back and starts giving a preemptive speech about how he never does this while Henry fills him in about how he almost killed himself when he was stopped by Jonesy, who then walked in front of a car on that very same day. Beaver returns to the cabin and meets Rick, and Beaver points out the discoloring on his face, and then Rick begins belching and farting and... Yeah, it's bad. I mean, I won't beat a dead horse, but it's just not good. Um, I will say this, though. The the quick focus on his belly moving, uh, it's pretty creepy. And the fact that Josie noticed that it, it, it was his chest that had been bigger when he'd first gotten there, and now that it's his belly, it's enlarged, it's very effective. Henry and Pete floor the truck in order to get up the snowy hill, which is a technique that I'm very familiar with, as I have to do the same thing to get to my house every time it snows. They narrowly avoid hitting someone in the middle of the road, which causes a car crash. As Henry pulls Pete from the wreck, they at least have a good time laughing about it. Back in the cabin, Beaver and Jonesy watch as the animals flee through the forest. It's one of the book's most striking images, and Kasdan nails it. It's beautiful, it's weird, it's haunting. It's a great image, and it completely works on screen. Henry and Pete approach the woman in the road, who is clearly suffering from the same ailment as Rick. And then back in the cabin, a a helicopter flies over the cabin, and the chopper tells them that there's a quarantine. Terrifying concept. Infected animals fleeing the unknown. A sick man inside. A military helicopter in a quarantine. It's all terrifying. 
Henry leaves Pete alone with the woman while back in the cabin, Jonesy and Beaver spot what looks like gallons of blood leading into the bathroom. I really like the moment as Beaver and Jonesy discuss breaking down the door, and once they break into the bathroom, we get a truly disgusting scene. Red fungus and gore and blood spatter the walls. Rick sits atop the toilet, clearly dead, and when he's pushed over, we see his ruined backside and hear a splashing from the toilet. Now, here's the deal. Um, when I first saw the movie, when I first read the book, um, I really criticized the shit weasel. But seeing it in action here, hearing it with the chaos from the blood-drenched bathroom, it really works. Body horror, like I talked about in my review of the, the book, body horror is a long-established staple of the horror genre whose master, David Cronenberg, had once directed the adaptation of Stephen King's The Dead Zone. And this scene is a great example of body horror. And what's fun about this, like, we aren't supposed to take this totally seriously. I mean, face it, Beaver dies because he reaches for his toothpick on the blood-drenched floor. It's just so over the top, it can't meant to be taken seriously. But even though it's cheesy and unbelievable, there's no denying that it's tense. He overreaches, slips, and the weasel explodes out of the toilet. The body horror continues as the weasel bites off Beave's fingers. There's an awful moment where Jason Lee pretends to wrestle with a CGI creature. The weasel looks great, but the moment is unconvincing. Kasdan and Goldman effectively sell the thing's intelligence as it attacks the doorknob as well as its viciousness as it starts biting through the door. The door slowly opens, and the weasel slides out and joins with its master, the translucent, slimy, towering alien Mr. Gray. Again, this is a great design, and the alien looks like our traditional gray alien on steroids. The alien then explodes into a sea of red mist, which Josie then sucks in. The military had been teased, and now it's here in full. We see the roundup and quarantine of the infected townsfolk, and are introduced to Morgan Freeman's Colonel Curtis. He and Tom Sizemore discuss the aliens. They aren't surprised or shocked, discussing how they've been cleaning up after the aliens for 25 years, which makes this a very interesting take on the alien invasion story. Back at camp, Pete has gone to get the beer at the car. When he returns, he fails to notice the red trail of blood making its way through the snow. He then drunkenly rambles about how he thinks Duddits is an alien while urinating. He's attacked by the weasel who bites down on a very sensitive place. Kasdan doesn't know if he should film it comedically or dramatically, and the scene doesn't entirely work because of this. Now, it's just over one hour, and if the movie had ended here, I really would have liked it. I really would have. Uh, but unfortunately, it doesn't. Because at this point... Mr. Kazdan gives us Mr. Gray, the villain of the piece, the alien who has infected Jonesy and speaks like a British butler. Damien Lewis having to speak uh, to himself, you know, Gollum Smeagol style, is an absurd decision. I don't know why Mr. Gray is British, by the way. I, I mean, Gray confronts Pete, who starts force choking him, and I'm not sure how. Is it because Pete is now infected with the Ripley? All I see on his neck is blood. Mr. Gray wants to know how Pete can find things the way that he does, and we know it's because of Duddits, but if Duddits is an alien himself, how come he has powers that Mr. Gray doesn't? What makes Duddits so special? While in the memory warehouse, a monstrous Mr. Gray politely asks Jonesy to let him into a secret room. Henry turns to the cabin, 
and finds the Ripley growing over everything. He finds the body of Jonesy, and a wet squeak lets us know that the weasel is still there. It's curled up on the bed, protecting eggs that have come from somewhere. Jonesy blows its head off in a great gross effect, and is about to burn the eggs before he realizes that it's already laid a bunch of eggs, whose babies are coming for him, tiny gross little weasels that are crawling all over him. He drops the matches, except for one, but manages to light it, lighting up the aliens. And even though I might have issues with how the story is told, one issue I don't have is with the effects. These effects are just top-notch. Uh, the Ripley-covered cabin is unsettling. The weasels, uh, the large one and the small ones, are just simply gross. But like I said in my review of the, the, the book, what is the physiology of these creatures? The spores infect people which birth the weasels, which then lay eggs from which pop out more weasels. So if weasels are born from the spores, why do they need to lay eggs? Isn't their means of production already effective? Anyway, uh, we have a Duddits flashback where the boys look to the sky and shout, I Duddits! before they set off to find a missing girl. The military head towards the crash site in a scene that's very well layered. As they approach, they hear pleading voices to leave them alone, a great way to show the manipulative qualities of the monsters, who can project the image of friendly greys but are in fact large weasels. Pete then dies as Mr. Gray transforms Jonesy's body, and again, I'm confused. What is Jonesy at this point? Is he a possessed Jonesy? Or is he the last shred of human consciousness within an alien? I guess that's the answer, but I don't understand how it transformed Jonesy. I mean, if he can transform into the monster Mr. Gray, then it suggests a level of molecular control, right? So then why does Jonesy still walk around with a limp? As I try to untangle the unnecessarily confusing biology of these aliens, Kasdan treats us to a chase scene within the memory warehouse where Jonesy narrowly escapes being eaten by Mr. Gray after he ventures out of his safe space to collect all the information on Duddits. In quarantine, Henry does what he can to work on a vulnerable Owen who doesn't believe that Morgan Freeman is in full control of his faculties. Owen springs him out of the quarantine zone as General Matheson storms into the base. I can't tell. I don't know. I don't know what I'm watching, honestly. I don't know what they're doing. I just don't get it. Henry has a mental conversation with Jonesy using a revolver as a telephone. I just don't understand what's happening. Tom Jane is so serious in the role, I can't tell if he's over the top on purpose or not. Henry and Owen pick up Duddits, played by Donnie Wahlberg. And if you thought that young Duddits was offensive, then you ain't seen nothing yet. Duddits is now our magic MacGuffin, an object needed to be collected by our hero to save the world. As Duddits leaves with Henry and Owen, Duddits' mom shoots her hands up in the trademark Duddits symbol, making her look like she just saw her favorite soccer team score a goal in the World Cup rather than saying goodbye to her son for the last time. On the ride to the Quabbin Reservoir, Duddits continues to talk about Mr. Gray, except except at no point does Duddits actually ever call him Mr. Gray. According to Duddits, as he lets us know over and over again, our villain is named Mr. Gay, a name that, while memorable, and would make this movie infinitely more enjoyable to watch, is not very intimidating. At the Quabbin, we have our final scene. Our heroes and villains have converged on the reservoir while Morgan Freeman flies a helicopter as fast as he can. Morgan Freeman is taken out with his own gun, guys. His own gun. Henry and Duddits head into the Quabbin to put an end to the alien menace. Mr. Gay leaves Jonesy's body, and with the battle cry of ooby dooby doo we ought some work to do, Duddits allows himself to be attacked. Mr. Gay... Um... 
Mr. Gay inserts himself into Duddits, and the scene climaxes with one final I Duddits, and then we get some CGI alien sex. And I'm not joking. Watch this scene. Alien Duddits and Mr. Gray are totally having sex. Their passion is so intense, it burns them both alive, and Henry looks longingly into his friend's eyes, uh, utters Jonesy one last time, and the credits roll over what sounds like a soundtrack composed by Prime 2003 Moby. And that is Dreamcatcher the movie, guys. Um, a movie that I find is very strong in the first half, and it end- if it ended... Uh, when we meet Mr. Gray Possessed Jonesy, the movie would be an A. Unfortunately, it hovers around the D mark and deserves the 30% Rotten Tomato uh, rating that, that it has. It's it's pretty rough. It's pretty, it's pretty rough and nonsensical. And uh, the tone fluctuates just a little bit too much at the end. And it's just so disappointing because if it had just stuck on the trajectory in the beginning, it... It could have been something. And like I said in my review of the, the book, the focus of the four friends trying to just survive against the backdrop of an alien invasion, I mean, that's a pretty good hook. That's a pretty good hook. But once you start to open it up to that broader world, it just loses it completely. And I really wish that the filmmakers had decided to change the perspective and, and keep it focused on our four friends. Uh, because shifting away to uh, Morgan Freeman and... Uh, and and Underhill, just uh, Tom Sizemore. I'm sorry, just just it doesn't work. And uh, in terms of book versus movie, um, the Memory Warehouse versus the the Tracker Depot, I would have to give um, to the movie. The friendship between the four, I'm also going to give to the movie because they do a really good job. And just seeing these actors who are all very established actors at this point being able to just exist with each other again it's a it's a lost and missed opportunity that the movie didn't did not have them more in it together because it's great it'd be great to see um all of them together so yeah i mean in terms of these characters it's it's totally the the movie over the book um and as much as i like morgan freeman i think that the depiction of kurtz is better than uh curtis and likewise underhill than than tom sizemore and Duddits uh, does not work on screen. He doesn't work on the page, but Duddits is, is definitely better served on, on the page. So I'm going to have to go with Duddits. So I'm going to go with the book because the, the book was written by a man who had died and came back and was rehabbing his life and existence and was in a great deal of pain. And you kind of got to give him a pass for that. Whereas the... The, the creators of the movie were in full control of their their faculties and continued to to make the same mistakes that King had made and chose not to correct those mistakes. So I got to go with the book completely on the book. So that's my review of Dreamcatcher. And make sure that you stick around for the, the next episode as I get into the long-anticipated sequel to The Talisman co-written by good friend Peter Straub. The uh, sequel picks up many years later, and we meet Jack Sawyer, 
now a retired police detective as he has to track down a missing child that will lead him to the titular black house and a great treat for for me when i first read it was that i realized that it wasn't just a talisman novel it was also a dark tower novel converging his two fantasy realms into one novel um which was fantastic so i'm very excited for next week's review guys and um i guess next week is is where i will see you and may you have long days and pleasant nights and make sure you come back here where m-o-o-n spells stephen kingcast scooby